Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for it is great, and in the strange ways that you show us mercy that at time don't seem very merciful, but um, hindsight being what it is, uh, we see your great mercy at work in our lives, uh, even uh, when we are hard of heart. And so, Lord, uh, we thank you that your grace extends uh, to all to whom you will be merciful to. You give mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're uh, continuing, continuing our series on unlikely converts, and last week we talked about Rahab the prostitute. We did not name our daughter Rahab, um, so um, um, somebody pointed out that, um, that because we're going to talk about Gomer the prostitute next week, um, that because we didn't know if it was a girl or a boy, Gomer would go either way, um, so Gomer was a good, a good pick, but we settled... We settled for Jehoshaphat. So, <laughs> um, today we're going to talk about Jonah. And last week in talking about Rahab, uh, we're, let me just do the series real quick. Unlikely converts, the people who you never thought in a million years would become Christians, become Christians. And oftentimes the people that we find ourselves working on and praying for and we say are this close to becoming Christians... Um, may never become Christians, and the last person that you would ever expect to become a Christian uh, on the face of the earth becomes a Christian. And nine times out of ten, you say, praise the Lord, but you know what the biblical response is? Shoot. Because remember when Paul was converted on his way to Damascus, and the Lord spoke uh, to the church and said, Paul, uh, the great persecutor, has become a Christian, and no one wanted to believe it. Nobody wanted to believe it. And not simply out of fear, but what we'll find out in Jonah today um, is that at times for Christians, there can be a level of resentment um, watching God uh, convert someone who we may, uh, may or may not think deserve to be converted. And that really is the story of Jonah. And whereas uh, last week, we had to read between the lines with Rahab to see folks questioning her and um, whether or not her conversion was real and uh, being a prostitute and all that meant and the family coming into the house. I encourage you to read it uh, from in the book of Joshua, a very good story, um, that uh, it, it was implicit, implicit, whereas this week... Um, Jonah's pretty explicit about how he feels about God's dealings with people. And Jonah starts out okay. He comes, as, comes across as incredibly holy. And um, the Lord uh, comes to Jonah and says, uh, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But what is Jonah's response? I'm going to Tarshish. Sayonara, Savior. So he goes, he goes the other way, and um, he goes down to Joppa, which is modern-day Tel Aviv, and he catches a boat on the way to Tarshish, pays his fare, goes with them away from the presence of the Lord. Uh, now, that's, that's a little bit of a hyperbole, um, because can you go anywhere from the presence of the Lord? No. And so Jonah at some point understands that this is an exercise in futility. Uh, and we know that because the great storm arises and everybody on the boat flips out and says, somebody's responsible for this. 
And who, um, who raises their hand? Jonah. Now, I don't know if I were Jonah, I'd just kind of, you know, I, I would, um, I'd start pointing fingers, um, whatever. Uh, but Jonah actually raises his hand and says, I am to blame, which is a sort of resignation because he realizes there's nowhere that I can go, as the psalmist says, that is outside the presence of the Lord. I can't outrun God. And so you know what? It's just better that I'm dead. It's better that I'm dead. I can at least rest in that. So it's a strange sort of suicide thing that Jonah is doing, and he just says, throw me over, and everything will be fine. And of course, the men don't hesitate. Oh, actually, they do hesitate a little bit because they're worried about this guy who clearly has a death wish, and they've never experienced anyone saying, it's me, throw me over. And they throw him overboard, and what happens? Everything goes back to normal. Sun comes out. They're able to put the water skis back on the back of the boat like it's great. Um, and I said, well, how about that? He was right. And while he's there in the ocean, uh, the Mediterranean, ready to go ahead and die, uh, God does what? Y'all remember this from VBS. <laughs> what? Comes a great fish that swallows him up. And there he is in the belly of the whale. And... Um, if you've ever had the opportunity to be in the belly of a great fish, it gives you some perspective. And uh, you, you have, all you have is time on your hands to think about things. And um, while he's there in the belly of the whale, whale he uh, begins to pray. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves, your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up from my life from the pit." Okay, so what he's saying is um, he thought he thought that God was giving him an out by letting himself do himself in. Right? He thought that God was in, somehow involved in that. And yet, just when he was ready to die, God intervenes, brought him up from the, from the pit. Oh, Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the land, the dry land. Um, praise the Lord. So, a couple things. Uh, Jonah's a faithful guy, although he's clearly heavy burdened. He's got a lot going on in his life, and the last thing he feels that he needs is to go off to Nineveh and preach uh, repentance to these people. There's not an answer given as of yet why he won't go to Nineveh, which is actually a very big city, um, a population of about 120,000 people. And um, no explanation given, given except that he runs. He runs from what the Lord is calling him to do. Uh, and because he's a believer, he knows that there's futility in this, that, um, that he can't not only outrun 
the presence of God, but he can't outrun the purposes of God. Right? Um, a lot of people I know uh, feel like that life is like those choose-your-own-adventure books, right? Where you know you get to you're on page 80 and it says, "Go to page 83 if you want to go into the cave. Go to page 97 if you turn and go the other way." And you know, you go, of course, you go to 83 because you want to know what's going to be in the cave. But you know, you bookmark the 97, and um, and it says you've been eaten by a bear. The end, right? You remember those books? And a lot of people think that about God is if God has, here is God's plan, and if you're not on board with it, it thwarts everything. As if God is up in heaven and he sees Jonah get on the boat for Tarshish, God says, Oh no, what do I do now? I didn't see this coming. <laughs> Jonah, I need you. And a lot of it is in the church. A lot of people will say things like, um, we are God's hands and feet. There is some truth to that because God uses us to do his will. But uh, on the other hand, it's not as if God needs us. He doesn't really need us. He's, he's God. He can take care of things. Uh, and yet in his mercy, he chooses to use us. And so not only can you not run from the presence of God, you can't thwart God's plans. One of the things that you can rest easy in as a Christian is that no circumstance that you're involved in is irredeemable. Everything that you're involved in life, even when things go terribly wrong, and even when you've made a giant mistake, like getting on the boat to Tarshish, or thinking life would be better if I were dead, even God can redeem that. There's nothing that is beyond God's purview, and his arm, as the psalmist says, is never too short to save. And so, there, I, you know, I, I want to say that in the grand scheme of things, although there's some, ast there's some footnotes on this one, um, you can make mistakes, but you can't, can't really make a mistake. You can make mistakes, but you can't really make a mistake. And so, um, if God really wants you to do something, you're going to end up doing it, uh, whether you like it or not. And God will go to some great lengths to make sure you do it, like getting you swallowed by a gigantic fish, whatever, uh, whatever it is. And on the one hand, nobody wants to be in the belly of the whale. But on the other hand, um, Jonah getting swallowed by the fish was a great act of mercy. Right? God saved him and his Ark of Refuge, last week we talked about the Ark of Refuge being a brothel, uh, and this week's Ark of Refuge is the belly of the fish. Right? Again, God takes the unlikeliest and the strangest of things in order to rescue you. Remember when uh, Andrew and everybody else had met Jesus, and they go, um, I always get it confused because Philip and Nathaniel are in the story, but they go and and they say, hey, we found the Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. And what's the response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you telling me that the only safe place in Jericho is in the brothel? But I'm a Christian. Are you telling me that, that God is, you know, a, a belly of a whale? Is that my ark of refuge? Is that where I'm going to be safe? And while in that belly, Jonah gets some perspective, and this perspective is this, uh, you win. You win. But what we find is that Jonah's heart 
was not quite converted to God's plan and purpose for his life. Because even though he gave this wonderful, great prayer, you know, if my kids sat down at the dinner table or before they went to bed at night and, and prayed this, I would think they're like super Christians. Right? <laughs> this, is the most, this is the most amazing prayer I've ever seen. This is biblical proportions and job well done, Andrew and Lauren, and uh, God has intervened in their life. Uh, praise the Lord. Uh, but we, what we really find out is that this prayer means nothing. It's a total projection. Jonah is still lying. Now, y'all weren't told this in VBS, but anyway. um, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called out for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. So Jonah goes in, and revival breaks out. I mean, I I wish that such short sermons were so effective. Um, Everybody would, at the end of it, be like, this is great. Um, You know, uh, this one little sentence, and um, it's clear a couple things. One, God had already worked in the hearts of the Ninevites. So when God is calling you to do something or when he has a purpose for your life, he's not sending you in blind. right? God is not only with you, but he's before you. right? He goes ahead of you as well. And so I have a lot of friends in ministry who get burnt, have been, I mean, you know, guys even in their 30s who are totally burnt out. Uh, And uh, when you start to talk to them, why are you so burned out for ministry? uh, And you get down to it, what they're burned out about is they say, I preach this message week in and week out and nothing has changed. There's still the same complacent, unmotivated, parishioners, now this is just Joe Warren I'm talking about. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, They just, my preaching is not making any difference in their lives and I just don't know what I can do to motivate them. Uh, This is pretty common amongst preachers, but it's also common in families, especially with children. I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to do. Uh, And sometimes uh, what the Lord is calling us to do is just engage. Just engage. Just trust him and be with him. Because here's the thing, is that the results of God's call and purpose on your life are honestly, again, not contingent upon you. They're not contingent upon you. God is going to bring about the harvest. Remember the the parable of the sower? Sower had some seeds, scattered some here, on rocky soil, some of it on pavement, some of it on fertile soil and some on shallow soil, and of course, all of them received the same amount of water, right? But some grew up and were uh, bearing fruit, and others were not. And uh, that little parable says, um, look, you sow the word because that's what God has called you to do. God will use people and intervene in their lives to water it along the way. 
But ultimately, what brings about results is God, not you. Last week I mentioned Charles Finney, who was a revivalist in the 19th century, and he really felt that there was a way in which you could manipulate people in your preaching and in your worship to make them become Christians. And you may have seen this. I've seen this done uh, in in certain ways uh, where it's just so emotional and so hyped up that, um, you know, if, if a mosquito bit everybody in the church, it would fly away saying there's power in the blood. I mean, it's just one of those things. And, you know, at the end, you give the altar call and everybody's ready to charge hell with a water pistol. And then a couple months goes by and it's kind of back to normal for most of the people there. Uh, that's the rocky soil where it sprouted up really quick, but it was never able to take root. Uh, and uh, ultimately, it's God that is going to produce uh, the results because what has to happen, and no one has been able to do this. Uh, if you can figure it out, you'll make a lot of money. Nobody's been able to figure out through coercion or even sweetness or um, any way to plow up the hard, hard earth of the heart in human terms. No one's been able to figure out how to, I mean, you can soften somebody up a little bit, but I'm talking about deep, actual, making your heart fertile so that God's word can take root. The only person that can plow up the hard heart of human beings is God. That's the only person that can do it. And Jonah knows this. Jonah knows this. So clearly what has happened is it's these people have not been converted uh, because of Jonah's preaching, although that's what God used to convert them, but they've been converted because God had already acted and intervened. And one of the things, um, well, what we see next, let's just get to that. Even the king of Nineveh repents, and um, and it's great, and it's wonderful. And from a preacher's perspective, you would leave the city saying, that was, that was a good mission. That was a pretty good mission. And yet, verse 1 in chapter 4, after this amazing revival, this is what the Bible says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I make haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And Lord said to, the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? What a funny prayer. I knew you were merciful. I knew you'd forgive them. Well, um, so take that, and now let's look back at what was really happening in all of those things. The reason why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh, bless you, is because he knew that God could do it and would do it. So what Jonah's real issue is, is not trepidation or fear, but my man's got some real issues. And he has deep resentment toward God and God's grace. Because what he really feels is that, and he's already said it, right? Nineveh was a bad place, right? It's like Las Vegas. 
but worse. Las Vegas without the casinos. And uh, I mean, it's really bad. And so Jonah is looking at Nineveh and saying, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve to be loved. They don't deserve to be forgiven. They don't deserve a second chance. They deserve to be wiped out. And I'm going to preach this message. And there's a part of me that hopes that they do get wiped out. So that makes the sermon even worse. right? So it's not like Jonah was saying, my friends, repent. For the Lord's wrath will overwhelm you. Repent. He was saying, you know what? Y'all are jerks. Y'all to repent, but I hope you don't, because I hope the Lord overwhelms you, right? <laughs> and it worked, right? It worked. And it works, and God does it. But here's the issue with um, Jonah resenting God's grace. This is not the only biblical illustration. Let me use two more, because a good parallel for this in the New Testament is the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story. Uh, there are two sons, one of which... Um, the youngest, I don't think that that's, uh, that's, a, um, that's intentional to say it's the youngest. So the youngest son um, says to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want the inheritance now that would come to me when, um, when you die. So if you could uh, fork that over, that would be great. And the dad does it. The son goes away, and he spends all of his money on prostitutes and high living and he gets a job working in a pigsty, um, and he thinks, how could a good Jewish boy fall so far? Here I am amongst the pigs, and the pigs, which I'm not even supposed to be around, uh, have it better than I do. Uh, what I'll do is I'll go back and I'll hire myself out to my father. I'll apprentice to some skilled worker. I'll live with them in town, but I'll be on contract for my dad. And in order to get restored to the family, he would have to pay back the inheritance. And that was his sort of um, family reconciliation layaway plan. And so um, he's on his way back. And um, while he was still far off, the dad sees him. And what's the dad's response? He comes running off the porch, right? He goes headlong, fast as he can. He embraces the son. And the son starts his starts speech. Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. And before he can get any farther, this, the father cuts him off and says, put on the robe, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, kill the fattened calf. We're having a party. This son of mine, which was once dead, is now alive again. Now, up till now, who haven't we heard about? But now enters the picture big time. The older brother, right. Well, older brother, uh, dutifully, dutifully working out in the fields. And after a hard day comes in and hears... Um, and here's a Commodore's cover band and, uh, and, and smells barbecue and, uh, you know, um, the third set late, Doug, Doug Clark and the Hot Nuts will be playing. And, and, uh, and he's like, whoa, 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 what is going on? And, and, the, uh, and the servants say, this brother of yours, they're thrilled, this brother of yours who once was lost but now is found dead but now is alive, he's returned and, and, where, and your dad killed the fattened calf. And uh, big brother is ticked. He's ticked. Now, here's something funny. Where was Big Brother when Little Brother said, you know, he clearly had not gotten much financial advice from a financial advisor, but he said, I want all this money and I want it now and I'm going to Vegas. I'm going to Nineveh. Um, 
right? Where was Big Brother saying, don't do this. Don't do, you're my brother. I love you. Stay close. Stay close. Everything that you have, you, you need, you have here. Don't, don't stray away from the farm. And then even when the brother, the big brother goes, in this culture, do you know whose responsibility it would be to go find little brother? The older brother. It's his job. But he wasn't going to Nineveh. He wasn't going to Vegas. He wasn't going to Seattle, wherever. And he, he sort of said, good riddance. Good riddance, because now he knows that any increase in wealth on the farm, which he's basically managing, because everything that's left belongs to who now? Big brother. But the moment little brother is brought back into the family, right? because the way that it would work in the ancient world is that the whole of the estate, the older brother would get double shares and, and the younger would get one share. So a third of the estate had already been sent to the younger brother, and now only two-thirds of the estate is left. But now that the little brother is back, that two-thirds, once again, is now broken down even more. You see, now he's entitled to a third of that two-thirds. Well, the older brother wants nothing to do with it. And the father, who is clearly compassionate and merciful, go, leaves the party, which is unheard of, leaves the party and meets the older brother. And he says, all that I have is yours. And the older brother says, you've not done anything for me. You've not killed the fattened calf. You've not even given, given me anything for my friends to celebrate. And of course, the dad's saying, you could have. There's nothing preventing you from, from doing that. And, um, and the older brother says, I've worked for you dutifully. You owe me. You owe me. He doesn't, you don't owe him anything. Now, from a human perspective, which son would you like to have? I mean, if we're honest, we want big brother, right? But the one who's going to stick around, keep the family business going, make it profitable. You know, take care of us at St. Martin's of the Pines and all that kind of stuff and visit us and um, take us out to lunch and things like that. Um, the younger brother is, is the one that we just think. And if you're, I'll just, let's get personal. Because when am I not? Um, in my family, I have, uh, we all have normally a younger brother, older brother situation. And I'm definitely a reformed older brother because I, I see it now. But my younger brother, he's crazy. And uh, like, what was the what was the uh, the Hurricane Sandy? Hurricane Sandy. Uh, when Hurricane Sandy was coming through, they live uh, in Pauly's Island. And my younger brother, who's in his late twenties now, everyone else is like, you know, should we get plywood? Should we do this? Uh, my brother's response is, I'm going to Delaware, New Jersey. I'm a surf. I'm going to surf Hurricane Sandy, right? That's, that's his response. And he, he did, and he went, and we haven't heard from him. Just kidding, he's, he's alive. But, you know, there's a, and, then, and then he gets into trouble, or, you know, he'll go on a trip, um, you know, or whatever, and he'll call and say, Mom, I need you to, to, to send me some money, or, or you know, this. Like, he, he's one of those guys who always asks, why, why, Lord, is it happening to me? And you're like, are you serious? Like, <laughs> I don't understand. It was 4 a.m. in New York City, and I couldn't. I got lost, and, and I had a good time. And uh, now I don't have any shoes. Why does this happen to me? Like I can tell you why it happens to you, um, right? The Holy Spirit goes to bed at midnight. That's true. So, you know, as an older brother, I can understand the resentment because I'm sick and tired of my parents bailing this kid out. I think he needs to learn. 
He needs to learn his lesson. And so when he comes back and dad sees him on the porch, what dad needs to do is to go back in the house and, and make him wait. You just think about what you've done. And, um, and then slowly, I mean, the game plan that he had was very good. Why upset the apple cart? Make him work. Make him earn it. Make him earn his way back into this family. And that's exactly what Jonah thought about the Ninevites. That's exactly what he thought about the Ninevites, is that here are people who have done nothing to earn God's favor and grace, and they ought to be shut out. And the person that ought to be getting all the nice rewards and all the nice grace and all the nice mercy is me. And what I shouldn't have to be burdened with is having to look out for these people that deserve death, that deserve to be let go, that deserve to be left to their own devices. Well, uh, Jesus tells this parable, but then... He takes it a step further and um, actually has an encounter like this. And um, we're back in Jericho now. And uh, there was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, whose name was? Right. And uh, if you pay $5, they say they'll show you the sycamore tree that he climbed up into. There's no such thing as a 2,000-year-old sycamore tree. But um, (laughs) anyway, um, Jericho is a shady place. But you go... You go to Jericho, and Jesus is coming in, and the crowds are it's so packed. And remember, the religious leaders greet him at the edge of Jerusalem as he's on his way up to Jerusalem. And uh, Zacchaeus can't see, so he climbs up into the tree to see Jesus. And, you know, I'm sure the, the leaders said, uh, we have a lovely buffet brunch uh, set up for you after you do whatever it is you want to do. And we've invited the mayor, um, the rabbis, Uh, the leaders of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, we've got them all here, and you're going to meet with the religious leadership uh, of Jericho. And as they're walking through, he sees the worst person in Jericho, right? Zacchaeus, incredibly wealthy, but incredibly wealthy because he's cheated everybody. He's collected, because the thing about it is, is tax collectors back in the day, they were given sort of a base of what Rome required of them, but they always added stuff on top of it, and they were, that was fine. They were allowed to do that. If you don't like it, you don't like Mount Brook, move in the city, right? But, you know, some of it comes with its, its, its perks. So Zacchaeus was, high, was taxing Jericho rather highly. So even though he had all this money, um, he really didn't have any place to spend it, um, didn't have anyone to spend it on uh, because he was despised. And no one's going to move out of the way so that he can see Jesus. And he climbs the sycamore tree, and Jesus sees him and says, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. For today, I am going to eat at your house. Right? All of a sudden, the marching band runs into one another, and like, <laughs> like the float goes out of control. It's like the end of that movie that I would never recommend called Animal House. And it's like all, all over the place. And everybody's just shocked. Zacchaeus? Really? No, 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 no. I'm probably saying, Jesus, you know, that's really nice, um, but we've got plans for you. You know, not anybody but Zacchaeus. You know what? I've got people in my life, you've got people in your life who are Zacchaeuses that um, you'd rather just stay up in that tree. Um, I was talking to someone the other day, and uh, and I said, you know, I, I wonder about heaven uh, because we're going to be with people we don't like. <laughs> Think about it. I mean, there are believers that, that you'd rather not spend eternity with, but you will. Now, I can say that the beef between you will be gone because there's no sin in heaven and there won't be those impediments uh, between the two of you, 
or between you and all of them. Uh, but, but it doesn't make me feel that much better. It, it doesn't. And uh, even though I would never articulate it and say, you know, this, I, I want this person uh, to burn in hell, I would probably not ever say that, but I would say I'd rather this person not be in heaven. You know, it makes me hope for limbo, even though it doesn't exist, or some sort of Andrew Annex that can <laughs> maybe put over here. So we all have little brothers. We all have Ninevites. We all have Zacchaeuses in our life that we'd rather um, not be bothered with, uh, that we'd rather God not have mercy upon them, um, but we feel like we, we deserve mercy. Uh, we uh, deserve uh, grace that God owes us, but he, but those others don't uh, deserve it. And um, that's because the default mode of the human heart is to be blind to our own faults and yet incredibly aware of everybody else's. To be blind to our own faults, but to be incredibly aware of everybody else's. Uh, I'm learning this with my children. Um, if somebody lies, they're liars. But if I catch Lily, my almost four-year-old, in a lie, it's complicated. It's a lie, but it's not really a lie, right? But they're liars, but I'm just telling a little bit of a fib. And we're always in constant denial uh, about uh, the shape we're in. But if we stopped, uh, as the older brother, we pray would have stopped, um, and the people in Jericho and, and even Jonah, uh, what we find is that we at one time, and some people still are, who have their act together, who are the older brother, who do all the right things, uh, who might even be religious and have a lot of projection like Jonah and all this seeming holiness, uh, but in fact, are just as alienated from God and just as lost as the little brother, as the Ninevites, and um, as Zacchaeus. And so the message of Jonah uh, is uh, that God's mercy uh, is not necessarily our job to decide who gets it, uh, but God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And praise God for that. Because if I was looking for God uh, to give me grace uh, because I earned it, um, I wouldn't get it. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't get it. And so what I find is that uh, it turns out there's a little bit of Jonah in me at times. But you know what? Deep down inside, I know I'm a Ninevite uh, that cries out for mercy and uh, wants and desires to hear about this grace that has no strings attached, uh, but that I would turn to the Lord Jesus and, and be saved. And um, so uh, for me, uh, I pray against being a Jonah uh, and that God would continue uh, to change and plow up my hard heart, uh, which is hard toward Ninevites and younger brothers and uh, Zacchaeus is in the world. Uh, but it turns out uh, that's, that's who God loves. Flannery O'Connor said something interesting once, just one thing. Uh, Flannery O'Connor said something interesting once, which was, if you want to avoid Jesus, avoid sinning. If you want to avoid Jesus, 
avoid sinning. Now, most people think the opposite is true, but in fact, uh, Jesus is in the business of saving sinners, not the righteous, not the well, but those who are ill. He has come to seek and save those who are lost. Questions, comments, concerns? <laughs> what does the story say about free will? Well, I think the story does, it says something, what does it say about free will? It says something about individual responsibility, right? Jonah couldn't just throw up his, you know, the joke around our house growing up is what did the Presbyterian say when he fell down the steps? Glad I got that one over with. Um, some of you who grew up Presbyterian know, know that joke. So it's not as if there's not individual responsibility. Jonah was still on the hook for what God called him to do. Right? Because that's the means by which God works. But it's not as if God's will can be thwarted by our will. Right? That, that, that can't be done. And if you're a Christian, uh, you've felt this before. You've felt it deep down inside when uh, you're kind of going this way and the Holy Spirit gets hold of you. And the prayer is, is that you don't get too far away. But again, God will go to some great lengths to... And, you know, but the thing is, is a lot of Christians will say things like, the devil's attacking me. Now, that might be true. You might be undergoing some spiritual warfare, but I've seen, you know, it might be God too, right? Because if I'm drowning in the ocean and some fish swallows me, I'm not thinking that's the Lord Jesus. I'm thinking, oh, you know, Beelzebub is out, you know, the fish is going to eat me, right? That's what I would think, but it turns out that it was actually God. Uh, in the midst of that, trying to get our attention. So on the one hand, you have individual responsibility, which the Bible upholds. But on the other hand, you have God's um, omnipotence and um, his ability to thwart even our wills. And the the theological word for that is an antinomy, two things that are held in tension that seem opposed to one another uh, and yet both true at the same time. So that doesn't answer your question. But let me tell you, when we get to heaven, it'll be sorted out. You, you don't worry about it. You just, you just love the Lord and you're going to be all right. Any other questions? There's a good book by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Um, it's very short and it's a good read. It kind of talks about why evangelize if God is just going to convert their hearts anyway. It's a good book. I think we have it in the bookstore. So mention this broadcast and you get 10% off. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, in spite of ourselves for whales that swallow us, um, little brothers that drive us crazy, Ninevites who um, make us self-righteous, Zacchaeuses who um, make us judgers, Uh, But Lord, in the midst of all that, we thank you that you intervene and you open our eyes to show us that we're all in the same boat and we praise you for your mercy, which is not merited, but is dispensed freely and as a gift. And Lord, we thank you for using us, uh, broken jars of clay, to contain this gospel message and to be used to do your will. And so, Lord, give us courageous hearts in dealing with troubled siblings, Ninevites and Zacchaeuses in our life. But above all, Lord, that we would entrust 
all of those things to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.